Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining with us for this week's podcast. As per usual, before we begin our time together, I want to take a moment, let you know a bit of what's coming up in our community. This week, Dr. Rick Strangway continues our new series, While We Wait, and Rick is the Associate Professor of Theology at Ambrose University, but he's also a part of our church family, and we're really happy to have him teaching again. Also wanted to let you know that we have put in a nine-hole disc golf course here at Southview, and it's called Southview Links Disc Golf Course. You can set up a time to play through the UDisc app, so you can't just show up in case somebody else has booked a quote-unquote tea time. But special thanks to John Dirks, Todd Kennedy, Dave and Luke Burton, Mark Michaud, and Chris Elmquist, because they are the ones that made it happen. Lastly, just a reminder, we are still in the tail end of our June giving challenge, and our goal is to raise $375,000. And these dollars go to our general fund and building fund, which are the two key areas for our church and our ability to continue doing powerful ministry out of our church and into our community. And so we thank you for prayerfully considering giving to this. The best way to know what's going on at Southview is by checking out our weekly viewpoint, And you can find a link to our viewpoint in the episode description of this podcast. Or you can go on Realm and join the group Southview Family Updates, and that will make sure you're always getting the weekly viewpoint in your inbox. And if you're new with us here in this digital space, we would love to hear from you. You can find an online connection card at the bottom of that viewpoint, along with a prayer request form so that we can support and join you in prayer. And additionally, you can always find us on Instagram and Facebook. But now today, no matter how you're joining with us, may each of our hearts be open and expectant because God is here and Jesus invites us to bring all that we are and all that we're currently carrying to him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let's seek the face of God together. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you. Grateful that we can join together in the name of Jesus Christ and turn to his word to explore what he would have to say to us. As a community of faith, we are in this season of waiting. And so the leadership has invited uh, us to explore for the several weeks. And Pastor Sam last week began uh, a series of teachings called While You Wait. He took us to Genesis chapter 12. And there we found again the faithfulness of God and his promises as he spoke to Abraham and Sarah, and we saw the blessings of God begin as the story of the people of God began at the same time. We move all the way through into the New Testament today, and we land in the very last chapter of a long two-part book that began in the Gospel of Luke and ends and written by the same author in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 28. And so I invite you to turn into your Bibles or to look into your digital devices to Acts chapter 28, and we'll explore the last half of the chapter beginning in verse 16. It kind of picks up the end of a little piece of the story of the Apostle Paul. When he got to Rome, verse 16, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. And three days later, together the lo- he called together the local Jewish leaders. And when they had assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. Romans. 
They examined me, wanted to release me, because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. The Jews objected, so I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. I certainly did not intend to bring any charge against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to see you and talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. And they replied, we have not received any letters from Judea, or Jerusalem is, is another way to kind of reference that, concerning you. And none of our people who have come from there have reported or said anything bad about you. But we want to hear what your views are. For we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect, this way of Jesus, those people who began to follow Jesus the Christ. Verse 23, they arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in large numbers to the place where he was staying. He witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And he tried to persuade them about Jesus. Some were convinced by what he said. But others would not believe. They disagreed amongst themselves and began to leave after Paul had made his final statement. And here's his final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to our ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their hearts, and understand, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, verse 28, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught among the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. You'd think that when Luke wrote his, his story, from the beginning of the gospel to the end of the book of Acts, he could have thought of a way to end it a little bit more victoriously. Paul in Rome, Paul in house, cha- house arrest, in chains, with a guard outside his home, still able to have people in, it seems like at any point, at any time, But you would imagine if you were a writer, someone who was trying to tell the story of Jesus and the coming of Jesus and affecting the people of God, you would imagine that he would have had a better thought or a better process or a better picture than he might end it with. But we find at the very last chapter, it seems like, or could appear like with a little bit of imagination, that this is a place of waiting. And waiting, as we heard last week when Pastor Sam introduced the topic, is not something we naturally like to do. Now, it could be just more me, but as I try and frame waiting, I think of at least three different ways to think about it. There is that impatient waiting, that kind of in-the-line waiting when we want to get somewhere. And then there's maybe the little bit more patient waiting, where we're sitting back and relaxed, we're at winner's. And our significant others in the change rooms. We have two hours to kill on a Wednesday evening, and we're just, well, we're just enjoying the evening because we have time and we're waiting and enjoy. Or maybe it's the kind of waiting if you're a fisherman and you're in the boat and you're sitting there on a Saturday morning and you know it's really not about the fish, it's about the enjoyment of the space. So, yes, there's the impatient waiting, and then there's 
that kind of relaxed, restful waiting where you're just kind of meandering somewhere and you really don't need to get there. But then there's something else that I think affects us at times. And this is what I'd like to lean into. It's this unease that sometimes seems to settle in. That sense of anxiety or anxiousness is there beneath the surface. And it comes out in different ways and different personalities in different places and different times. It's that sense where we, we, just, we just don't feel, we're just off. Edwin Friedman wrote around 2006 uh, a number of articles, and then his family, after he passed away, put together a book called um, Something About Nerve is, is the title of the book. And his intent was to talk about what had shifted in the world. With a sense of globalization and technology and information coming at people, the effects of 9-11 just a few years earlier, there seemed to be within society, particularly in North American society, a sense of uneasiness that was rising to the surface. It was in the institutions. It was in the politics. It was in the way people looked at their finances or money and the economy in so different ways. And people were reacting. They were beginning to react outward in ways that society hadn't done before. Friedman suggested that at times people began to blame, point fingers, say, it's their fault, it's his fault. If they would have made the right decision, then we would not be in this place, would be some of the tones and, and sentiments. He also suggested within society that there were some postures and some tones where it became so overwhelming for many people that we just kind of took a step back we had our own stuff to worry about, and it wasn't always going well. We had our jobs, or we had our family, or we had certain relationships, or we had a parents who were aging, or we had a situation with a child, or whatever it would be. We can't handle the pressure, and it was too much here. And so, the posture for many in society over the years would find people just going, I don't know, I'll just take my popcorn and see what this transition to a next pastor will be like. I'll just coast for a while. I've done some good things. Many people have done some good things. I'm just not ready to push ahead. And besides, I've seen what happens when there's change. I've seen what happens when, when different people, it, it'll feel different. It'll look different. They'll joke about things that we wouldn't joke about before. It'll have a different, it, it'll, I'm going to sit back. I've got my own inner anxiety that I'm dealing with. Well, 25 years later, here we find ourselves post-pandemic with that same sense in so many ways affecting us in all sorts of dynamics. Now, our intent today is not to reflect on society, but it's to turn to the Word of God, the living Word of God that speaks to us. And here at the end of the 28th chapter, when Paul finds himself in Rome, the dominant power in the world in the first century, the power that would really declare Caesar is Lord, he as a believer in Jesus Christ had a different tone, a different attitude. His heart was rooted in something else. And that's what we want to dig into a little bit more in the next few minutes. Three phrases that we want to hold on to. You don't need to remember them by the time we're done, but at least they'll frame where we're going a little bit. They come in verse 28 and 30 and 31, and you'll notice somebody skipped over verse 29. Some older manuscript had a line in there, and you can probably find it in the bottom of the page. It'll talk a little bit about that. But for our sakes, these three phrases are what's important. 
God's salvation, the kingdom of God, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's start with God's salvation. In verse 28, therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. There is a long-storied reality that from the very beginning of what we heard about last week in Genesis chapter 12, the blessing that would come to Abraham would be a blessing that would move forward, and it would affect every nation on earth. There would be something that would be on the foot, something that would be moving forward, and this good news that God would work in some in this family would move outward and forward into all, all the world. Everyone and everywhere would be affected. But... As so many of us might know, again and again through the storyline of Scripture, we find ourselves that the people of God are waiting. They're uncertain. They're struggling with their own obedience at times, whether it's Egypt or whether it's Babylon or whether it's the wilderness or whether it's the Psalms crying out, Oh, Lord, how much longer? Yet, here in the 28th chapter, the Apostle Paul somehow, even though he'd been on his own journey, even though he's in house arrest and in chains. Somehow, he had confidence in the work of God afoot in the world, regardless of his situation. Let's go to Luke chapter 2, if you would, or at least listen in as I pull uh, a scripture from the beginning of Luke-Acts, which is really, like I said earlier, uh, a single storyline. In Luke chapter 2, verse 29, there's an old man in the temple in Jerusalem. His name is Simeon. He has long been waiting, long been hopeful, long been prayerful for something. You probably know somebody like that. When the day came, likely eight days in, when Jesus was brought as a little baby into the temple and, and he would follow through and what was to happen, and Simeon laid his eyes on this same Jesus, he lifted up his arms and praise God saying sovereign lord as you have promised you have now you may now dismiss your servant in peace for my eyes have seen your salvation which you prepared in sight of all nations a light for the revelation to the gentiles and the glory of your people of israel my eyes have seen your salvation he knew that something was happening now that jesus had 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 come his eyes were hopeful as he looked upon that. God's salvation is the first thing that we root ourselves in. Secondly, it's that phrase, kingdom of God. Luke loves the phrase kingdom of God. Paul talks about it again and again. In fact, eight times in the book of Acts, the kingdom of God is spoken about, and 37 specific times in the gospel. It's an important phrase. It doesn't just mean coming alive into life with God. It's not just kind of this individual identity and relationship with Jesus, though it is that. That is fundamentally important to new life or salvation in Christ. But it's this identity in Christ that is now shared in others as their identity is in Christ. It's this identity, unique oneness that now connects me to all those. The kingdom of God is a reshaping of what God is doing through the reign of Jesus Christ as God shapes the people of faith in Jesus Christ, in his love, in his grace, in his mercy, in his compassion. It affects economics. It affects politics, it affects education, it affects faith, of course, it affects where, what we do with our money, what we do with our time. It would reshape and reorientate everything. 
When Luke would talk about the kingdom of God, he'd often put in, uh, include the stories or the parables of Jesus. Some of us might know some of those parables to be images that would play around in our minds and help us remember that the kingdom of God is like a light that shines in the darkness through these people that are being formed and reshaped and renewed in Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is like a banquet that's abundant, that's full, that all can come. The slaves can come and sit at this banquet and those who are rich and those who are poor and those who have been pushed aside and forgotten by society, everyone can come to the The kingdom of God is the kind of place where those who find faith in Jesus Christ can share in the abundance of God because God is about renewing his people and renewing his work in the world through these people. The kingdom of God not only reorients hearts, it reorientates a people around the heart of God. The kingdom of God is fundamentally significant. So, it's interesting when we go into the beginning of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4, we see at least two times where these little kind of uh, snippets, images, pictures, where there's a pause in the storyline and the teaching and the preaching, and we see a picture of the church at work. Acts chapter 4 is the second one, and I just want to read a few of these verses. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed any possession that was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there was no needy persons among them. Hey, listen, I just feel like waiting. I don't want to get, this, this sounds like it's going to, someone's going to come along and ask me something, and they're going to demand, and, and I, I don't want to get involved. Sometimes I like coming to Saturday night service because it's just got a nice peace about it, and I can come in, I can slip out, and I don't have to talk to any. The kingdom of God invites you and I in to lean forward, not from a place of waiting, but a place and a posture of love and grace and mercy that sees my relationship with you and you with me and me with the person to my left or to my right or to others outside our community. Kingdom of God is what happens when God moves deeply through his grace and his mercy in our lives. When Paul sat there in that house for two years, and he proclaimed the salvation of God and proclaimed the kingdom of God, he understood that fundamentally the third phrase is that it was all re being refocused through the fact that Jesus Christ had come, taken on flesh, died and was crucified and, was, and died, rose through the power of God as it was witnessed again and again through the acts of the apostles, and then ascended to the right hand of the Father. And though again and again it may not look like it, he reigns and rules, and you and I join him in that work. The Lord Jesus Christ was a declaration. It was a posture of the heart. It was an attitude. To say that Jesus was Christ was to say that Caesar wasn't. At least two Caesars declared themselves God's sons. At least Two Caesars declared themselves God, but for, for, for the most part, most of them did. Through the first century, the reality of a small cluster of people calling themselves the Christ ones or Christians or followers of the way, as sometimes we see in the book of Acts, 
were counterculture because they would choose not to go to the, to the uh, uh, Caesar's kind of places of, uh, of worship or to the pagan temples. They would choose not to participate in certain things. And that would mean in their daily function and focus that the reality would be they might not be able to broker and do business with people and get ba- uh, baked goods and so on down the line. It was an economic decision along with a spiritual decision. But Paul understood that something was happening, even though it wasn't always apparent. Even though the gospel had gone to Rome. And that's the sense how Luke is beginning to, is ending his story. The gospel has gone to right in the center of the power of the world. And it's in a house, and it's in chains, and you would think it's, it's over. You would think it's just not worth following after. Paul knew something else. Paul understand when Jesus entered onto the scene in Luke chapter 4, that Jesus proclaimed this when he began his ministry. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, the place of teaching, as was his custom. And And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and rolling it he found the place where it was written, And here's the words from Isaiah that Jesus read that day as he began his ministry, which continues to this moment. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me, Jesus was reading, to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom from the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That proclamation of the year of the Lord's favor was a declaration of of everything being changed and shifted. And then, before he sat down, he rolled up the scroll and he said, Today, in verse 21 of Luke Luke chapter 4, Today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is what shifted deeply Paul's story. This is why when he encountered Jesus in Acts chapter 9, the living Christ, now who has ascended, but came in, in a vision to, to Paul, that somehow it had shifted his reality, and he was willing to go. He was willing to lean forward. He was willing to get up from a place of waiting and move if God would call him to go. He would tell that story two more times in Acts chapter 22 and Acts chapter 26 when he'd tell his testimony and share his story in front of, the, in front of leaders. This was so fundamental for him to say, the Lord Jesus Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, has come, and he has changed everything. But I know my heart. I'm a busy person sometimes, and I like my Starbucks coffee. And I, and I just, I just want to wait. I don't want to commit. I'll, I, there's some good people in this community of faith. I've seen them. I've seen them. They look busy, and they look really spiritual. I like that about I think I'll just sit and wait. Somehow, you would have thought the story ended in Acts chapter 28. But it goes on. Paul would die, likely, church history tells us, two years later. He maybe made a trip to Spain. We don't know for sure. But he likely died as a martyr, likely died in some kind of uh, terrible way. But the good news of Jesus Christ would root itself in people just like you and I. People who are trying to make sense of things in places of waiting. 
People who are trying to figure out if they should go or if they should stay, if they should, if they should follow after, if they should get up and take another, if they should sacrifice more, if they should serve, if they should respond to the, to the invitation that was given to get involved this summer or whatever it would be. People just like you and I were trying to make sense of the world around them when it didn't seem like Jesus Christ was reigning and systems were being destroyed and education and politics and goodness sakes, what's happening with our hockey team? Anyways, uh, and these things were heavy on their hearts, it would appear. And how would they move forward? Church historians, individuals like Rodney uh, Stark would talk about the church would grow in the next couple of centuries exponentially into the millions, some suggest. The growth of the church before Constantine came around in the 4th century was incredible. And it was incredible not because of the systems or the organization. It was the grace and the work of God was Jesus now through the power of his spirit invested in the, in, in the people who by faith were walking with him and were not sitting in a posture of leaning back in fear, but leaning forward in service, in love, in willingness to step forward. God was afoot and things were changing in the next few centuries. Again and again, the poor were being fed. Those who were widowed, who didn't have any economic support, were being cared for. The church was welcoming in people who didn't at times feel welcome. They were, the, the extension of God's grace was being done again and again. And the church was moving not only there in Italy and Rome, but to the west and to the east and to the north. And we're the benefactors. Surely it does seem like the Gentiles were listening and believing in the story of good news. Cyprian, a bishop in Carthage, which is in North Africa, he would say this, we do not speak great things, we live them. There are times in a place where we're so used to social media and good, good things being presented and on all sorts of levels. There's times where we're waiting for the next good speech, the next good uh, talk, the next good branding. But the reality would be, again and again in the early church, as with Paul in those first few decades after Christ rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father, the church lived out the grace and the love of God in the world around them. Each individual acted. I wonder, as we read in these words, there's a fourth phrase. During those two, two years, Paul welcomed all who would come. I wonder if a place awaiting could be shifted. I wonder if we could imagine this space that we're in, this time, this period, this uniqueness that identifies each of us in this community as a place of welcome. That not so much that I'm leaning back in fear and anxiousness, unease and the heaviness of heart and wondering, is this going to work? What's going to happen? I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I'll think about it. I'll watch. I'll see, if it, I'll, I'll see if there's fruit that comes out in a couple of years. And then, I'll, and then I'll lean forward. Maybe I'll go check out a few other. I wonder if, if the invitation of the good news of Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 28 is to invite me forward and invite us forward to listen, to invite, to sit with, to offer grace, to give, to share, to sacrifice, to love, to pray for, to lay down our lives for someone else 
our neighbor across the fence, someone in this room, someone in our community, someone in our small group, someone, in, someone that God is pushing, that I do not get caught falling back in to what is my natural state so often, that sense of unease and hesitation. But I lean forward into the gift that God would give all of us, his love and his grace, and then extend it towards others. So isn't it amazing, as we've often heard in our church, that the high point of the service is not simply listening to the word of God, but the high point of the service is a shared meal, a meal of welcome, a meal where we participate in, being reminded that it's not simply what I bring to the, uh, to, to the meal, which is just myself, but I, I'm nourished on the very life, on the body of Christ, on the blood of Christ, that I share that not only in Christ for me, but I share that in community with others. What a simple but profound image of welcoming that we receive from God. So, friends, I invite you. I invite you at this time that you would take that little cup and peel back the top later and take that little wafer. And remember again, as Jesus would say, this is my body which is broken for you. Let's partake. And then with his disciples, Jesus would also say, this cup, this cup is the new covenant that redefines everything as we lead into his grace and his mercy, the forgiveness of sins, and the hope that we have to offer both in our own lives and to the world around us. Let's partake. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your patient mercy towards us. Through the long story of Scripture, again and again, while our hearts have turned from you or leaned back into our chairs, you've patiently invited us, extended mercy, extended grace. When we've turned and been rebellious, you've offered us hope invitation in you, Jesus. And your offering of life not only transforms us individually, but transforms the way we live and our hope. We thank you for the gift of your life, Jesus. And we thank you that we are given the gift of your spirit to live in a way that we can faithfully follow after you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we close, I'd like to read a benediction for you, and I invite you to stand. It's one that many will know well. It's found in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Likely while he was in prison in Rome, he wrote these words with a sense of the same hope that we talked about in Acts chapter 28. Receive these words from the Lord. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth derives its name. 
I pray that of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you and I may be filled to the full measure of the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all that we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in his church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. God bless.